This is not a normal week of NFL training camp. No, 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 no. So to recap, Sterling Shepard, low ankle sprain, will likely miss the entire preseason. Will Fuller, broken collarbone, will miss two to three months. Ryan Tannehill, likely to miss the year with a partially torn ACL, which he should have had repaired with ACL surgery in the offseason. Can the Dolphins do nothing right? They can't scout prospects properly. They can't self-scout properly. They can't sign players to team-friendly contracts. They overpay free agents like Indomitian Sioux. And now they're botching player health. <laughs> the Miami Dolphins lead the NFL in incompetence. In every area of team management, they're botching. <laughs> Front office, coaching, everything. It's just one failure after another, after another, after another in Miami. This was a failure by the medical staff, and I also blame Ryan Tannehill. He should have gotten a second opinion. He should have done right by his career and had surgery, regardless of what those Dolphins quacks were telling him to do in January. Ryan Tannehill was betrayed by team doctors, and that's why you can never trust the team doctors, because more often than not, they will betray you. They only care about helping to keep the coaches and the front office staff employed, and that means getting you out on the field without missing a game. That's always their incentive. Get the player back out there. Find a way to get him to play. Miss as few games as possible, even though in the bigger picture, that's in conflict with what's in the best interest of the franchise. In the long run, having players play healthier, all the while missing more games to rehabilitate, is a net positive for the franchise. It keeps your assets healthier, and the players that are on the field are playing at a higher level. We talk about this on many shows, the conflict of interest between coaches, team doctors, front office staff, and the franchise as a whole. It's a wonder that more owners and ownership groups do not feud with front office staff and coaches and doctors, because rather than making decisions for the good of the franchise in the long run, most of management makes short-sighted decisions with this myopic tunnel vision only looking at the next game. And it's maddening. If you're a Dolphins fan, it's maddening. If you're the Dolphins owner, it's maddening. I mean, they thought Ryan Tannehill was their franchise quarterback. He's not. He never was. Ryan Tannehill was never good. Go to our YouTube channel. Go to YouTube. Type in Roto Underworld Radio. Ryan Tannehill. There you will see us comparing Ryan Tannehill to Medusa. There you will see us comparing Ryan Tannehill to Jamie Lannister from Game of Thrones. There is a video titled, Ryan Tannehill has never been good. He never will be good. There was no chance that Ryan Tannehill would be a franchise quarterback in the NFL the moment he was drafted. Why? Because... He only posted a 68.3 college QBR at Texas A&M. That was 32nd percentile. And the only reason the Miami Dolphins drafted him in the first place is because his former coach at Texas A&M was hired by the Dolphins as their offensive coordinator, and he was fired a long time ago. Mike Sherman is long gone. But the damage he has done, dooming the Miami Dolphins to quarterback purgatory, continues to reverberate, and have consequences for a wayward franchise. There's no way the Dolphins are going to compete for a Super Bowl in the next five years. They signed Indomitian Sioux to a contract that is unsustainable, and they are wallowing in the depths of quarterback purgatory in the NFL. And Ryan Tannehill is absolutely the Medusa of the NFL. I mean, he's beautiful to look at. 
That's why he was drafted in the top 10, because he looks the part. 6'4", 220, runs a 47040, 80th percentile. Smart guy. 34 Wonderlick, 77th percentile. So you get him in the meeting room and you watch him on the practice field, he's impressive. But the on-field metrics, the college QBR, the yards per attempt, the breakout age, all under the 32nd percentile. Think about that. He broke out at a late age. Why? Because he initially played wide receiver at Texas A&M. So that's a red flag right there. Wait a second. This guy is not a career quarterback. He's trying to switch positions and learn the quarterback position on the fly at the college level. That never works. You need to be pre-programmed starting in middle school going to quarterback camps to understand how to play the most complex and challenging position in all of sports. You can't just pick it up in college on a whim because you flamed out as a wide receiver. The Ryan Tannehill experiment was destined to fail the moment it began at Texas A&M, but Mike Sherman had a vested interest in seeing his experiment through to its conclusion. So Mike Sherman was like a Dr. Frankenstein. He wanted to see his creation out there in the world and see how successful it could be. It was a selfish act to advocate for Ryan Tannehill with such clear bias. But it's not just Mike Sherman's fault. It's also Jeff Ireland's fault. He was the ultimate decision maker. He pushed the button on Tannehill. Mike Sherman didn't have him in a headlock, wasn't cutting off his breathing passage, wasn't forcing him to either draft Ryan Tannehill or lose consciousness. So it was a franchise-wide debacle. That's what Ryan Tannehill has been since the day he was drafted by the Miami Dolphins. And now it's reached a comic low point. And what's frustrating for me is I've been saying this all along, that Ryan Tannehill could never be good in the NFL. It was a wasted draft pick. Stay away from the wide receivers that surround Medusa. Flee that entire offense because it can never ascend with Ryan Tannehill under center. I've been saying this for three years since we started Roto Underworld Radio. And I'm going to be right because, of course, just playing the probabilities. He's a converted wide receiver with some of the worst college numbers we've seen by a quarterback on a professional roster. So, of course, it wasn't going to work out. Of course, I was going to be right. Forever, the Ryan Tannehill enthusiasts will look back and say, well, he was robbed of his opportunity to ascend by the knee injury. It's the knee injury. He was hurt. We'll never know what he could have been. Yes, we will know! I know what he could have been! Because we've seen for years what he is at the professional level. He's nothing! It's just a bunch of nothing! He's a mannequin quarterback! He looks the part! But when you go up close to him, you realize, oh no, this is just hollow plastic. And I've called him Medusa because he turns coaches to stone. How many coaches have been fired while Ryan Tannehill is the starting quarterback of the Miami Dolphins? How many? How many head coaches and assistant coaches have the Miami Dolphins fired during Ryan Tannehill's tenure as the starting quarterback? It's a lot. It's more than 10, it's more than 20, it's more than 30. That's what the Medusa of the NFL looks like. But Adam Gaze supposedly broke the curse, shielded his gaze. He solved Ryan Tannehill by turning him into Jamie Lannister, by cutting off his arm and saying, we're going to hide you in a dungeon. Why don't you go ahead and stop throwing so many passes? We're going to let the run game determine our fate. Thanks, Ryan. And even that didn't work. 
Did the Miami Dolphins make the playoffs? No. Would they have made the playoffs this year? No. Can you make the playoffs with Ryan Tannehill? Maybe if you have one of the NFL's best defenses. Short of that, absolutely not. The bottom line is Ryan Tannehill has never been hashtag good at football, and he wasn't going to develop the necessary quarterback skills to ascend at age 29. You can go to Google. You can type in Ryan Tannehill and read one of the thousands, not hundreds, thousands of puff pieces raving about Ryan Tannehill's potential, all misguided based on a bunch of nothing, a bunch of Kean Fahey film grinding nonsense analysis. I'd rather have Matt Moore. Matt Moore has more upside than Ryan Tannehill because we haven't seen everything that Matt Moore can bring to the table yet. He doesn't have season after season of underwhelming football on his resume like Ryan Tannehill does. So there's more uncertainty around Matt Moore, and for that reason, by definition, more upside. The only reason Ryan Tannehill's been starting over Matt Moore all these years is because Ryan Tannehill was drafted with the eighth pick overall. Matt Moore went undrafted. Matt Moore does not look the part. Matt Moore runs a 49740. <laughs> so he's not athletic, not as big as Ryan Tannehill, not good looking. So for all those reasons, it's why he's best comparable to Andy Dalton. It's the perfect comp on playerprofiler.com. Matt Moore to Andy Dalton. These players don't look the part, and therefore, they are perceived to be average or below quarterbacks in the NFL, and I don't think that's the case with Andy Dalton. I think he's well above average. I think he's on the precipice of being one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, and I think Matt Moore is undervalued, underappreciated. This is why I object when so many fantasy analysts assume that NFL teams are just machines that render efficient decisions. They're not. Oftentimes, the roster decisions NFL teams make are inefficient. Oftentimes, the choices that NFL teams make, who to put in their starting lineup, are irrational. So often, we see NFL teams are prisoners of their own mistakes. Don't get me started with Jeff Janis. Just don't get me started. I go down this road every time. Eventually, it terminates with a Jeff Janis rant. It's not going to happen. We're already seeing it in Green Bay with Jamal Williams getting first-team reps over Ty Montgomery. We're already seeing it happen. The irrational personnel packages that the Green Bay Packers will inevitably deploy this season. Few teams make less optimal depth chart decisions than the Green Bay Packers. So it's not surprising that they would have a weapon like Ty Montgomery and then seek to minimize the positive impact that he can have on the team. We've already seen this with Jeff Janis. And we will see it again with Aaron Jones in the years ahead. If you have an exciting young talent from a small school drafted in the later rounds and he goes to the Green Bay Packers, whether it's Jeff Janis or Aaron Jones, your best hope is just get that player out of there. Somehow, someway, help that player escape Green Bay because they will likely never be appreciated. So I'm looking forward to Jeff Janis being a WR1 in fantasy for the New England Patriots in the years ahead. And when I look at Matt Moore, he reminds me of Tom Brady in that he's been underappreciated, but he just never had that opportunity to step in and show the coaches, I can be a starter. I'm one of the top 32 quarterbacks in the league. I understand you're invested in the other guy, and I'm either undrafted or a late-round pick. I get it, but watch what I can do when I get in there. Of course, Matt Moore isn't Tom Brady, but watching Ryan Tannehill scramble down the sidelines, get out of bounds, get hurt, I immediately thought of Drew Bledsoe. 
In steps the unheralded Tom Brady. Now in steps the unheralded Matt Moore. It just so happens that Tom Brady's coach was a more progressive thinker than any coach that Matt Moore has ever had the displeasure of playing under in the NFL. Because many believed it was a mistake to start Tom Brady in the Super Bowl with a healthy Drew Bledsoe. Bill Belichick was widely criticized for that decision. Most coaches would not have been able to violate conventional wisdom and expose themselves to criticism like Bill Belichick did starting Tom Brady in the Super Bowl against the Rams. Most NFL coaches are simply too risk-averse. That's the reason why Matt Moore has not had more opportunity to start more games in the NFL. Because Bill Belichick can only coach one of the 32 teams. The rest of the teams are coached by the Mike McCarthys of the NFL. The highly risk-averse, highly irrational, blundering coaches. Because just recently, Matt Moore threw nine touchdowns in his last four games played. I believe he's the NFL's best backup quarterback. In his one season... Starting more than eight games, Matt Moore posted a 7.2 yards per attempt. 7.2 yards per attempt is Ryan Tannehill's full season career high. Matt Moore's career yards per attempt and his career touchdown rate are both higher than Ryan Tannehill's. He throws a few more interceptions. That's the difference. But I believe Matt Moore is better. Matt Moore gives your team a better chance to win because he can make plays with his arm that Ryan Tannehill cannot. And having Matt Moore under center this season instead of Ryan Tannehill is a good thing for Jarvis Landry. It's a good thing for Devontae Parker. It's a good thing for Kenny Stills. And it's a good thing for Julius Thomas. It's not bad. It's good. It's actually not bad. It's good. It's counterintuitive. From a fantasy football standpoint, there's nothing to see here. We won't be diminishing any of the Dolphins' offensive assets on our rankings, playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. The best fantasy football rankings ever. So there's really nothing to see here, except the Dolphins now have a convenient escape hatch to avoid QB purgatory. The Dolphins were two years away from replacing Ryan Tannehill with a young quarterback using high-round draft capital, and then another couple years away from that quarterback developing to the point that he could be an asset to a team and help them make the playoffs. So now that time frame has been reduced. If anything, this was a positive development for the franchise. And Ryan Tannehill is going to be fine. He was never meant to be a starting quarterback in the NFL in the first place. But he was afforded the opportunity to be a starting quarterback in the NFL for five years, make tens of millions of dollars, look like a male model, marry a beautiful woman who also loves to shoot machine guns. I mean, Ryan Tannehill is going to be fine. Normally, I try to empathize with the athlete, but recently with Clinton Portis and with Ryan Tannehill, it's harder for me to feel bad given the great heights they've been able to achieve. And in the case of Ryan Tannehill, undeserved heights. And I talked earlier about how Jamal Williams received a first team rep in Packers practice. They called a run play up the middle and they handed the ball off to Jamal Williams with the first team offense. Sell Ty Montgomery. Don't draft Ty Montgomery anymore. Did we reduce our ranking of Ty Montgomery on our rankings? No, of course not. Did we elevate Jamal Williams in the rankings? No, of course we didn't. Why? Because even though Mike McCarthy is a buffoon, I believe that Ty Montgomery will overwhelm him with spectacular plays throughout training camp and preseason, and that even the most misguided coach in the NFL, the most incompetent manager of an NFL franchise, would not be able to resist the urge to maximize Ty Montgomery's touches after seeing what Ty Montgomery can do on the football field in his second season playing the position after he was 
the most efficient runner in the NFL last season, finishing top three in juke rate, yards after contact, and breakaway run rate on playerprofiler.com. There will be enough tape of Tom Montgomery dominating this preseason that even Mike McCarthy will realize that Tom Montgomery gives his team the best chance to win and that Ty Montgomery deserves a David Johnson-level usage rate. We do not whimsically update our rankings based on the observations of some guy that writes a blog peering through the chain-link fence at a Packers practice. I mean, come on, man! That's not how we do it! That's how the other guys do it. That's why our rankings are the best, because they're analytically driven. They're not based on the observations of beat reporters or the speculation of bloggers. And Bill Belichick alluded to this recently because Austin Carr, wide receiver for my alma mater, the Northwestern Wildcats, signed as an undrafted free agent with the New England Patriots. I mean, it was a very Patriots thing to do to sign the white possession receiver from Northwestern. I mean, that... Find a more Patriots undrafted free agent signing throughout history. I challenge you. Spoiler alert, it's Austin Carr. So Austin Carr's been making plays, been turning heads, in quotes, in training camp. And Bill Belichick was asked about Austin Carr's performance and his potential, and this was his response. Right, you know, you guys are asking a lot of questions about what we've seen from this guy or that guy. We've yet to put on the pads, all right? I understand that this is a pretty talented group of evaluators you have in this room. He doesn't really think that, by the way. Classic Bill Belichick softener. But in all honesty, here we go. Here comes the truth. Our evaluations come more in training camp when we actually practice and we can fully execute the techniques and plays that we're trying to do. So the main thing that we're trying to get done in spring practice and the main thing we're trying to get done in these days of minicamp is to teach the players what to do to give them the most fundamental instruction that we can given the restraints that we have on practice. Then, when padded practices start, that's when we say real training camp begins. So I know everyone's all excited when a guy catches a pass, but when the defense doesn't jam him, or they're not allowed to really because we don't want heavy contact out there, aren't competing for contact at the end of the play, then it's not quite the same as when all of the contact is going on around the player. I'm not taking anything away from the receivers. I'm not taking anything away from anybody. I'm just saying that's what it is. The competition level out there is not anything close to what you're seeing in games. But I know a lot of people are real good at evaluating players. (laughs) Again, he doesn't really think that. But I'm not making evaluations right now. We can keep asking about how everybody does on this and how everybody does on that. And it doesn't matter. The main thing for me is to see if we're doing the right thing, doing it properly. How can we correct this? How can we correct that? Get everybody to the point that they can go out there and be the best of their ability against very competitive players on the other side of the ball when that finally is allowed to start happening. That's when the evaluations really start. All I know now is whether or not a person can take instruction whether they can do a technique properly. But that's very difficult to evaluate until that player is doing those things competitively against someone else. 
and what you're seeing out there now is simply not a competitive situation. What you're seeing from Jamal Williams are carries in an uncompetitive situation. So they don't matter. He needs to practice taking handoffs from Aaron Rodgers, does he not? He will get carries. No one's projecting Jamal Williams to score zero fantasy points this year, are we? Are we? Are we? No! So he needs to practice the technique with Aaron Rodgers. Of course he does. That has no bearing on whether or not Jamal Williams will significantly cannibalize Ty Montgomery's touches. Those are two very different concepts. And yet in the swirl of training camp reporting, they get muddled. They get misconstrued and misunderstood, particularly on social media. We've seen this with Jeremy McNichols. Jeremy McNichols has looked great in situations where he can't be tackled on the practice field. You're not seeing me retweet gifs of Jeremy McNichols taking a handoff and scoring a touchdown untouched in training camp, are you? Check my timeline. Check it right now. Go check it. Do you see that? You don't. Why? Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter according to Bill Belichick. So don't give me Jamal Williams. And I won't give you Jeremy McNichols. How about that? What matters in training camp is injury news. That matters. Sterling Shepard missing all of training camp and preseason matters. It provides an opportunity to Roger Lewis, who is absolutely good at football, I believe is even more versatile than Sterling Shepard. But like Matt Moore, Roger Lewis went undrafted. So Roger Lewis is not appreciated by that franchise. And when Sterling Shepard returns, he will likely inherit the job, but it won't be based on merit. Because as Chris Raybon explained in the last show, Sterling Shepard's yards per target last season was one of the lowest of all wide receivers who caught 65 passes. He was inefficient, and his fantasy production was buoyed by touchdowns, which are largely random. So if it were not for a random distribution of touchdowns, far fewer fantasy analysts would be worried about Sterling Shepard and his ankle. That's why in deep dynasty leagues, I'm absolutely rostering Roger Lewis. Because if Roger Lewis gets an opportunity on a per-target basis, I believe he will offer the Giants more than Sterling Shepard. Because Roger Lewis has the ability to play inside and outside, where Sterling Shepard is a one-dimensional slot receiver. You can move Roger Lewis out to flanker and kick Odell Beckham Jr. into the slot to take advantage of a matchup. So having Roger Lewis on the field instead of Sterling Shepard provides a tactical advantage to the Giants coaches, and I don't believe they realize that. And even if they do realize that, they're too risk-averse to actually implement that strategy. Why? Because there's only one Bill Belichick in the NFL. And when you look at the injuries, the most noteworthy injury of the week after Ryan Tannehill was Will Fuller. He's going to miss two to three months. He broke a bone. That's a big deal. That's news you need to pay attention to. And I believe it's wheels up for Wendell Williams. Because Wendell Williams is a better Will Fuller. When you go to the Wendell Williams profile on playerprofiler.com, you may be pleasantly surprised to see the headshot of one Wendell Williams. And when you look at his workout metrics, he's one of the top five most athletic wide receivers in the league. And the reason his breakout age was so late, he broke out at age 24, it's because he wanted to be a professional basketball player. And when he washed out in the D-League, he decided to go play football because he also loved football. So that's the reason for the late breakout age. You can absolutely rationalize away Wendell Williams' late breakout age. And he's the perfect 
replacement for Will Fuller because he has a Will Fuller skill set to replace the routes that Will Fuller was running one for one. But Wendell Williams went undrafted, just like Roger Lewis went undrafted. So my guess is that Bill O'Brien and the Houston Texans will not value Wendell Williams. They won't appreciate him. They're going to give Braxton Miller and Jalen Strong an opportunity before Wendell Williams, even though that's a suboptimal decision. That's irrational. Why? Because Braxton Miller, like Sterling Shepard, is a one-dimensional inside player only. He cannot stretch the field like Will Fuller and Wendell Williams. And Jalen Strong is on that Cody Latimer career path. He's a player that historically has always underperformed his athleticism. I get these questions on social media all the time. Well, why don't you like Jalen Strong? And I'm like, do you listen to the show? How many episodes do I have to talk about a player underperforming his athleticism before you just go to playerprofiler.com, pull up his player page, and just know what to look for? I mean, how many times do I have to teach you how to fish before you can go out there and catch a fish? There's bass all over this lake. Go catch one. You know what to look for. When a guy with a 125.5, 93rd percentile Spark X score only posts a 31.1% college dominator, that's a red flag. He's a big guy, 6'2", 217, exceptionally athletic, and he can't post a dominator rating above 31% for Arizona State. It's not like he was competing with Jarvis Landry at Arizona State for targets. He was the focal point of the attack, and yet... He underwhelmed, and he underwhelmed across the board. The dominator rating, 50th percentile. The yards per reception, 40th percentile. And his agility score was abysmal, 1152. 1152. So that partially explains Jalen Strong's lackluster college resume. With that agility score and that dominator rating, you know he's not a great route runner, and he never will be. He doesn't have that in his skill set. Route running is important. If you can't run precise routes, you have to completely overwhelm the defense with athleticism and hand-eye coordination. And clearly, he doesn't have that either because the dominator rating was 50th percentile and the yards per reception was only 40th percentile. It's not like he was Philip Dorsett out there posting a yards per reception above 20. When he finally got his hands on the ball, he was able to dominate the defense. That wasn't the case either. So Jalen Strong's not delivering explosive plays and he's not commanding the target share you would expect from a player who fits the NFL X receiver size-adjusted athleticism prototype perfectly. So you avoid Jalen Strong. You never waste a roster spot, even in the deepest dynasty league, on a player like Jalen Strong because he can't play. He's destined to be flushed out of the league in the next couple years, just like Cody Latimer. These are just a handful of data points to pay attention to at the top of a player profile. How do you not know this by now? I mean, how? We've been talking about this for three years. It comes up every other week. Does it not? Contact the show, rotounderworld at gmail.com. Tweet me at rotounderworld. Have we not talked about this on a record just over and over and over again? I mean, I feel like the needle on the record is boring a groove into the record. It's just been played so many times. I don't even want to talk about it because I feel like I'm lapsing into reruns. I feel like I'm boring the audience talking about Jalen Strong because his profile is so obviously a profile of a player you want nothing to do with in fantasy football. Nothing! But yet, that's what we get on Twitter. 
saturated with requests to talk about Jalen Strong and his intriguing profile in quotes. And you people can go to hell or go to realitysportsonline.com. That's the other option. Go to Reality Sports Online, start a dynasty league, and draft Jalen Strong. But the beauty is on Reality Sports Online, you don't just draft players with snake drafts. No, 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 no. Startups are auction-based, and you assign contract lengths to players. Also, in free agency, there's blind bidding. So Reality Sports Online offers the sophistication without the complexity, without forcing commissioners to navigate 200 settings to set up a league. So if you're going to start a dynasty league, go to Reality Sports Online now. If you have a dynasty league, transfer your league to Reality Sports Online now. You want to join a dynasty league, go to Reality Sports Online now. And in all these cases, use the promo code UNDERWORLD. And the injuries to pay attention to are not just injuries to skill position players that may or may not be fantasy relevant like Will Fuller. I mean, here's another tweet from Mike Clay about Jalen Strong. Quietly a solid rookie year in tough conditions for Will Fuller. The time is yours, Jalen Strong. The time is yours, Jalen Strong. Mike Clay, so presumptuous. But I agree. I think that Jalen Strong will be the next man up. He could be a starter in two receiver sets for the Houston Texans in week one. And that is a crime. The difference is Mike Clay thinks that's rational. Mike Clay thinks that's the way to go. Mike Clay thinks Jalen Strong needs an opportunity to shine. I'm telling you, there's nothing good that can come from starting Jalen Strong on a football team. I'm telling you it's suboptimal. I'm telling you the move is play Wendell Williams in the Will Fuller role, play Braxton Miller in the slot, and let Jalen Strong watch the game from the sideline. But many others think the way Bill O'Brien does. Certainly Mike Clay fashions himself as someone who thinks like a coach, thinks like a beat reporter. Jalen Strong's the next man up. Why? Third round draft capital. Want to look at any other data points? No. Wendell Williams, undrafted. Jalen Strong, third round pick. The end. That's it. That's all I need to know. Because Mike Clay was saying the same thing about Cody Latimer last year. That he has an opportunity and he hopes he takes advantage of it. As if it was even possible for a player with Cody Latimer's potential to ever carve out a significant role for an NFL team. I'm here to tell you it's impossible. You can go listen to his show if you want wishful thinking. That's not what we do here. There's no wishful thinking on this show, except Jeff Janis. Because I'm seeing wishful thinking with Amir Abdullah. You all want Amir Abdullah to be a thing. I want Amir Abdullah to be a thing. But I am cautious about Amir Abdullah, and it's not for the reason you might expect. Amir Abdullah was a dominant college running back. 37.1% dominator rating, 6.1 yards per carry, 9.4% college target share. Every important metric on his college production resume, 60th percentile or above. Then he goes to the NFL scouting combine and he absolutely shreds. 138.7, 98th percentile Spark X score. I mean, he's small, 5'9", 205, but he benches 225, 24 times. With a burst score and agility score in the 98th percentile on playerprofiler.com. So, I love Amir Abdullah, clearly. And I think that Amir Abdullah is largely undervalued because he's perceived as injury prone when his first two seasons were derailed by random injury. Random. Torn labrum. Random. Foot sprain, random. It's a violent sport. And those playing the violent sport 
often tear connective tissue. That's what happens. And the news around Amir Abdullah is positive that he projects to be the primary back this year to dominate the opportunity share. This is all great, but I question whether or not the Detroit Lions will be able to run the ball. Will they be able to open up running lanes for Amir Abdullah? That's important. I mean, Amir Abdullah has the athletic profile to get the most out of runs that get blown up in the backfield. You want a player with next level, notice the word choice, next level agility to sidestep penetration in the backfield and get the most out of plays that a running back without that kind of agility would get nothing out of. So if I have a very poor run blocking offensive line, I want a player like Amir Abdullah in the backfield. The Lions offensive line run blocking grade was 71.3 last year. That was 30th in the league. And they just lost Taylor Decker. They lost Taylor Decker. This is a huge disruption for their offensive line. It means that other linemen have to shift roles and assignments. The loss of a cornerstone offensive lineman is greater than the differential in ability from the starter to his backup because there is a waterfall effect. The roles and responsibilities of the entire offensive line shift, reducing the run-blocking efficiency of the unit as a whole more than the differential between the starter and his backup, particularly when it's the best of the linemen. When the fourth and fifth best run-blocking guard and tackle are hurt, they can be replaced one for one, but when the best lineman goes down, it creates this cascading effect of inefficiency. On a run-blocking unit that was already inefficient in 2016. This is why Amir Abdullah's ceiling is capped. It's capped because in specialty packages, hurry-up offense, two-minute drill, who's in there? Theo Riddick. Who are they calling plays for in the passing game out of the backfield? Theo Riddick. And when they're running the ball in early downs, Amir Abdul is getting the ball behind one of the league's worst offensive lines. This is why I'm not drafting Amir Abdullah in redraft leagues at his current ADP. I'm also concerned about Mark Ingram and Adrian Peterson because the Saints lost their best offensive lineman for the season, Teron Armstead. Now, there's speculation these players might return in December, but in all likelihood, their seasons are lost. And this cascading effect will negatively impact Ingram and Peterson, most notably Peterson, because he will be responsible for the the between-the-tackles work. He's going to be grinding it out. He's going to need running lanes, creases. And the loss of Teron Armstead matters. The Saints had the best run-blocking unit in the NFL last season. The most unheralded achievement in the NFL was the New Orleans Saints offensive line being the best run-blocking unit. Generated zero discussion, and yet was incredibly impactful for Mark Ingram and Tim Hightower last season. So the loss of Teron Armstead matters. We reduced our projection for Adrian Peterson and Mark Ingram after that news, just like we reduced our projection for Amir Abdullah after Taylor Decker went down. And now we have to reduce our projection for Melvin Gordon. Fortunately for Melvin Gordon, though, the San Diego Chargers did not lose their best lineman. They lost Forrest Lamp. Forrest Lamp was supposed to be part of the offensive renaissance we would see with the San Diego Chargers this year. I'm very excited about what the San Diego Chargers offense will bring to the table this year, and the team overall should exceed expectations. 
And Forrest Lamp was the best run-blocking guard in the draft last year, and it wasn't close. I love Lamp. He was going to be a real asset for Melvin Gordon. You want great guard play. That's what drives run-blocking efficiency, and the loss of Forrest Lamp has a significant impact on the running game, and you must reduce your projection for Melvin Gordon given this news. It just so happens that Melvin Gordon is in this nexus in the rankings between the big three backs, David Johnson, Le'Veon Bell, and Ezekiel Elliott, but yet well ahead of LaShawn McCoy, DeMarco Murray, that he's not falling in the rankings, but you reduce the expectations nonetheless. Melvin Gordon is the locked-in number four running back on our rankings, playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings, and he's the last running back I would consider drafting with early round draft capital. Once Melvin Gordon's off the board, forget using early round draft capital on a running back. Not going to do it. Happy to take Melvin Gordon, though, in the first round. Happy to do it. Even after the loss of Forrest Lamp, happy to do it. Why? Follow Rich Rebar on Twitter, at Lord Reeves. And he talks about Melvin Gordon's usage last season after Danny Woodhead was injured. Weeks 3 through 13, Melvin Gordon posted a 90% running back opportunity share. 90%? (laughs) What? Yeah. Well, you remember, there were no other running backs on the team of consequence other than Danny Woodhead and Melvin Gordon in 2016. You remember that. Just for context. And just looking at the rate of rush attempts only, Melvin Gordon's rate that he posted from weeks 3 to 13 would have been the third highest in NFL history. Only Edron James ever commanded a more significant share of team running back attempts. Amazing. Amazing. In the face of that kind of opportunity, you must draft that running back in your top five. I would argue in your top three. We have Melvin Gordon a lot closer to Ezekiel Elliott than we do LaShawn McCoy in the rankings. Remember 2014 DeMarco Murray? His percentage of team running back touches only 53.7%. Just to provide some context, how much Melvin Gordon dominated the running back usage for the Chargers last season and projects to do the same this year. And who's going to cannibalize touches from Melvin Gordon in the backfield? Brandon Oliver? Andre Williams? Please. Melvin Gordon has not been an efficient player in the NFL. I'm not saying that. I'm saying efficiency matters a lot less than opportunity in a seasonal league context. Last year, Melvin Gordon, negative 0.2 production premium. The year before that, he was last in the league among qualified running backs in production premium, negative 24.1. But in both seasons, the Chargers were in the bottom half of the league and run blocking efficiency. This is why it would be nice. It would be nice if Forrest Lamp was healthy, but he's out for the season. But if you're going to command an opportunity share, well above 80%, you're going to be top three in the league in opportunity share. Book that for Melvin Gordon. That means you're also going to command at least 50 targets, probably closer to 70 targets, and at least 50 red zone carries. That means 50 receptions, and that means at least 10 touchdowns, regardless of the efficiency. Because Melvin Gordon scored 12 touchdowns last year, and he posted 41 receptions, while his yards per carry was 3.9. Melvin Gordon was actually more efficient in the passing game, evidenced by his yards per touch of 4.8, being ranked higher than where he landed in yards per carry. He also broke a lot of long runs last year, 15 breakaway runs. It's just he's never been particularly elusive. The juke rate, 21.4%, 44th in the league. That's why Melvin Gordon isn't more efficient. He simply does not make enough defenders miss to be near the top of the league in metrics like production premium, 
and yards per touch. He's also very young. He's going into his third year. He's learned many lessons. He's getting better. He's been working on his craft. So you can see the efficiency rising all the while commanding a historic opportunity share. This is why you need to be drafting Melvin Gordon. And this is why I don't mind drafting near the end of drafts. Drafting in the second half of a draft is not a problem because you can typically get Melvin Gordon. I just drafted in the pros versus Joes draft. And at the 10 slot, I drafted Melvin Gordon. And I know you're saying, well, what about zero RB, zero RB? Well, zero RB is not a static draft strategy that says you must draft wide receivers in the first five rounds. That's not what zero RB is. Zero RB says you need to factor in the increased volatility of the running back position as a whole when you are calculating the value of each player. So when formulating the value proposition for each potential draft pick, you need to factor in positional volatility. The running back position is more volatile as a whole. Running backs get hurt more than wide receivers and their year-to-year production is less predictable. So any projection you have for a running back needs to be discounted relative to a wide receiver that you would draft in a similar draft slot. And when you run those numbers and you process that formula to decide who to draft in a fantasy draft, what typically happens is the wide receivers bubble up to the top of your draft board, particularly in rounds two, three, four, five, and six, but not necessarily in round one. Because if you have an early pick, the value over stream, it's a metric on playerprofiler.com, looks at a player's fantasy points per game versus the best possible option on the average waiver wire and then factors in positional bust rates. So it looks at the differential between David Johnson and the average waiver wire running back and then discounts that value based on the greater bust risk of the running back in general. Run the numbers in the beginning of the first round, and you'll find yourself continuing to draft David Johnson and Le'Veon Bell in particular, because their value over stream, even after all of this adjusting, still dominates Antonio Brown, Julio Jones, Odell Beckham Jr., Mike Evans, and A.J. Green. You're still compelled to draft David Johnson and Le'Veon Bell. What I'm telling you is, later in the first round, When you're deciding between Melvin Gordon and Amari Cooper, Des Bryant, Jordy Nelson, T.Y. Hilton, Michael Thomas, that Melvin Gordon then overwhelms the other options after examining the position scarcity and the volatility-adjusted value proposition that Melvin Gordon brings to the table with the 10th overall pick versus Des Bryant and Jordy Nelson. And if you go to this pros versus Joe's draft, and I'll tweet it out, my timeline, at fantasy underscore mansion, you'll note that my next five picks were not running backs because that's the bust zone for the running back position. I tend to stay away from running backs in rounds two through five. Now, sometimes a volatility-adjusted projection for a running back exceeds all the available wide receivers. That could happen. It's happened to me in drafts this year with Ty Montgomery. Ended up drafting Ty Montgomery in the fourth round because of that. So it can happen. But there's such a zeal in fantasy drafts to acquire running backs that typically your competitors make your decision for you. By soaking up all the running backs in front of you, they essentially incentivize those that draft with an appreciation for running back, fragility, and volatility, end up pushing the button on wide receivers round after round after round. And it just so happens that in the FFPC format, which is what the pros versus Joes implemented, well, I drafted Jimmy Graham and Tyler Eifert in round 
three and four because it's tight end premium. Because Jimmy Graham and Tyler Eifert offer wide receiver level upside, getting 1.5 points in a PPR format, that's also best ball. So you want those boom weeks from the elite tight ends in an FFPC tight end premium format. And the beauty of drafting two tight ends in succession is that you're winning with game theory. I love winning with game theory. The easiest way to think about game theory is game theory tactics force others in the draft to change course. When your actions have a negative impact on the actions of others, that's game theory. Forced my competitors to draft tight ends before they may have otherwise because another team drafted two tight ends before I did. Sigmund Bloom, of all people, started his draft with Rob Gronkowski and Travis Kelsey. So by the beginning of the fourth round, two teams already had four of the best tight ends locked up. That's one of the reasons why, with my next two picks, I was able to secure Willie Sneed and Jamison Crowder. That's nirvana, right? No better feeling in a draft room than getting Willie Sneed and Jamison Crowder back-to-back in the fifth and sixth rounds. Then I followed it up with Theo Riddick, for reasons I mentioned earlier, and Terrence West. Now, I overdrafted Terrence West. I should have drafted Eric Decker there because later on, when I drafted Quincy Inunua, I could have had Jonathan Stewart. So if I had to pinpoint one mistake I made in that draft, it was taking Terrence West over Eric Decker. I agonized over that decision. It was the one decision I really agonized over. I think I ended up drafting Terrence West because I didn't want my competitors getting him more than I wanted to get him myself. And that sentiment is always a source of bad decision-making. Because when I zoom out and I look at the board, I would rather have Decker and Stewart than West and Inunua, even though I like West. I like West. After West, I went Jason Witten, Jaquiz Rogers. Yes! And I was the last team to draft a quarterback. So I waited long enough, just like Eric Balkman recommends, to be an asshole about quarterbacks. I went Carson Palmer, then Quincy Inunua, as I mentioned, and then Sam Bradford, who set the NFL all-time record for completion percentage in a season, and the Vikings are destined for a positive reversion based on schedule alone in 2017. And then I got three ideal late-round best ball seasonal league wide receivers. I went Cole Beasley, Devin Funchess, J.J. Nelson. Even though it's not rapid fire, let's do the gratuitous machine gun sound effect. And then I locked up the Tampa Bay backfield. 26 rounds, why not backfield stack? I got the three best Tampa Bay running backs. Earlier, I drafted Jaquiz Rogers, but then after J.J. Nelson, Charles Sims, and then Jeremy McNichols, and then, of course, snuck Jarek McKinnon onto the roster. Near the end of the draft, was shocked to see Chris Conley. Made sure I got Chris Conley in a best ball scenario with a guy with that kind of athleticism, even though he does look like Cody Latimer and Jalen Strong. He does project to be the starter in week one, and he has an even better Spark X score than Jalen Strong and Cody Latimer. So why not Chris Conley in round 24? And then in round 27, of course, my man, D'Angelo Henderson was still available. I don't know how. Before D'Angelo Henderson was drafted, the following players were selected. Jimmy Garoppolo, Kyle Juszczyk, Josh Gordon, Geronimo Allison, Seth DeValve, 
and Dontrell Inman, all drafted before D'Angelo Henderson. <laughs> Thank you. And then with my final pick, Mitchell Trubisky. Because I don't know. Fuck it. If you stuck around on today's show, I have a quick announcement. The Roto Underworld Listener Seasonal Leagues will be commencing shortly. We will be scheduling draft times. Go to Patreon.com, search Podfather, and make sure you're part of the patron community to qualify for these listener leagues. And if you want to get your name on the list, there's one more league that is yet to fill. Email me, rotounderworld at gmail.com. And get signed up.